You are all very obedient people. I know. Don't you love that overly pregnant pause? Um, I read this uh, verse this week. Sing praises. This is Psalm 47. Sing praises to God, comma, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, comma, sing praises. Sing praises to our king who is over all the earth. So we hardly have 12 words there. And sing praises just completely dominates that. It's hard to miss it, right? And you've already been doing that this morning. So Abe's already suggested a benediction earlier. So should I just call it quits here? But um, <clears throat> Well, I, um, I want us to turn to the book of Philippians this morning. We are in Philippians. We've just barely, if you're here just brand new, weren't here last week. We just started this little four-chapter book in the New Testament We're going to be in it for months to come, Uh, and um, I hope for those of you who were here at least last week, and maybe if not for sure in the weeks to come, uh, I am praying that every single person uh, who uh, comes on a Sunday morning would uh, sometime that week uh, swim in the book of Philippians. Uh, it's a four-chapter book. You could, I would encourage you to read it like you should read most of the Bible, or at least this kind of sections of the Bible. They're meant to be read slowly, uh, so um, maybe just read a chapter a day, and, and you know, five minutes a day, you can get through it in four days, these four chapters. But it's a, it's a good idea for you to um, soak in this book, uh, Philippians, because it's a book that's about a lot more than joy, as we're going to discover, uh, so I encourage you to, uh, to soak there and, uh, and enjoy it. Um, but I also want to, um, uh, I want to give you a little orientation that I didn't last week. I want to help you know your cousins, the Philippians, um, a little bit about them uh, before we get going. Uh, but let me also do something that's even more helpful than that. Let me pray that uh, someone else would speak through my words. And so, our Father, hallow your name, bring your kingdom to come here on earth through even this moment. You've already been doing that this morning through songs and conversations and the energy of just simply being together. Thank you. Continue now for the sake of Jesus. Amen. So Gail read for us this little section of the book of Acts. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Acts just covers the first like 30 years of the Christian church, and you see it expand into Europe in Acts chapter 16, where it goes into Philippi, but she didn't read the earlier part of the chapter because we didn't ask her to, Um, but uh, there's a very interesting little um, episode that happens at the beginning of chapter 16. This guy named Paul, who's kind of a big figure uh, in the New Testament, he, he wrote half of it, 13 of the four, uh, 27 books that make up the New Testament. He also did a lot in terms of planting churches, and he comes and finds this guy named Timothy, who's going to be a big companion of his. You'll see Timothy in the book of Philippians. And it says, um, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Uh, And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And 
even if you know the Bible, you want to just stop there and go, say what? Um, what's going on there? Well, this is amazing to me. I, it, I think it's one of the most helpful things you can ever learn about, uh, about the Bible. But did you know that chapter 16, this is, this is so amazing, comes after chapter 15. <laughs> and in chapter 15, in the book of Acts, there is a brewing and massively serious division going on in the Christian church. And she's hardly, she's not even out of her diapers yet. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a difference, the division is between the Jewish Christians, those who are coming out of a Jewish background, and those who are coming out of a Gentile, a non-Jewish background. And it is a major division, and it shows up in almost every single letter of the New Testament. It will show up in Philippi as well. So that's, that's one factor that we already see here in chapter 16. And then this, uh, it was about a month ago, I think, or so, that Matt introduced us to this whole uh, episode through uh, sharing these three stories from, uh, about joy in the book of Philippians here, uh, or in, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. And the way this church was born in Europe is Paul was heading in one direction and he got a vision. It was called the Macedonian vision because this area of Philippi in northern Greece was known as Macedonia. And he gets a vision and that's what draws him up to Philippi. And there basically the church is made up of two primary households before he gets kicked out of town, as you heard about this morning. And that is Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman. And a Philippian jailer. Talk about a spectrum uh, right away of differences. Now, of course, what's interesting is Lydia may wound up may have wound up being the only person of real wealth in this congregation. This uh, this town, by the way, is only ten thousand people. It's one of the smaller Roman colonies, but um, most of the people in this church were local laborers. They were at the low end of the pay scale. Uh, even lower than a typical blue-collar person would be uh, in, in our, our culture, as opposed to the wealthy Italians that really ran the, the, um, the whole colony there. Uh, and then, of course, what's interesting is that even though this is a small Roman colony, it's a very proud Roman colony. Uh, this was, you're going to see as we get into Philippians a little bit more, this very subtle contrast. Paul has to be careful so that his writing doesn't become propaganda and get destroyed. But he has this subtle thing going on between the difference between Christ, allegiance to Christ versus allegiance to Caesar. You're going to hear in this book about how the Philippians were experiencing heat because the more the more loyal they were to Christ, the more unpatriotic they were to Caesar. Uh, so that becomes a big issue here. So that's going on, and uh, Paul gets kicked out of Philippi, but um, two years later, he returns on his way uh, to Jerusalem. There's a huge opportunity that has come up. It's, a, it's an opportunity to unite this church that's getting divided between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. The opportunity is that there's a famine in Jerusalem. And what better way to unite this divided church than to get all of these Gentile churches to send their hard-earned money to, with Paul to Jerusalem to minister to their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so he goes to Jerusalem uh, for that uh, moment. And by the way, 
a couple, about, about a month or so ago, I preached on giving here from probably, to me, the all-time best passage in the Bible on giving, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And there Paul is referring to these generous Macedonians who begged Paul for a chance to contribute to this offering to Jerusalem. And these were poor people in Macedonia who Paul says, you're the last people that should be giving. And they begged Paul to give to this. This is who these people are, the, the Philippians. And so there's these generous Macedonians. Paul goes to Jerusalem. He has this great idea in mind, but the opportunity backfires on him and he winds up in prison. And guess who tries to send them money when he's in prison in Jerusalem? The Philippians, yet again. But it didn't this time. They, the offering never got to him. So here it is. Uh, later, uh, it's a couple years later when Paul gets transferred essentially from Jerusalem and he's under house arrest in Rome. And so once again, guess who several years later seeks to send a financial offering to Paul in Rome? It's the Philippians. So now it's six years later when the book of uh, Philippians is written. By now they've, had, uh, they've, they've, they've grown a lot farther beyond just Lydia and this jailer and his household. Uh, they have established leaders there, but poverty continues to take its toll on these Philippians. And as a result, anxiety is growing in these Philippians. Can the gospel sustain me when the fridge is empty? And there's an internal problem in Philippians, and there's an external problem. The internal problem, there's dissension. We know when you have anxiety, it creates tension. That creates dissension. Uh, but there's also an external problem. There's bad theology that's starting to creep in when Paul's not there. Uh, and really when not a lot of great theologians are there either. You'll read about that in chapter 3. But all of these factors, the environment of the Philippians, these internal and external problems, all of these are contributing to a poisonous spirit of self-seeking. A poisonous spirit of self-seeking. And uh, one of the best uh, commentaries on this book that I've read by this name, a guy named Moisha Silva says, says, here's the tension Paul's feeling as he writes to them. How could he convey his great joy for the church's continual participation in his apostolic ministry, while at the same time rebuking them unambiguously for their grave lapse in sanctification? And so that's what we have when we have Philippians. And you'll notice, if you've read this at all, there's this kind of back and forth in Philippians. Paul's talking about his troubles, then he's talking about the Philippians' troubles. Paul's talking about his troubles and the Philippians' troubles. Paul's talking about how he responded to his troubles, and dot, 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 implication, this is how you can have joy in your troubles as well. It's really, in some ways, what I would call a joy apprenticeship that's going on here. And uh, this is, you can even see it starting off in chapter 1. Uh, in this early section we'll get to, Paul says, Here, how's, here's how I think of you. And it's all just overflowing in affirmation. Here's how you should think of my troubles. Paul's in prison as he's writing to them. And then here's how you should pray expectantly for my troubles. And then here's how you should respond to your troubles. This is the beginning of this joy apprenticeship uh, back and forth with Paul. So you have the passage we're going to cover in your bulletin and also in your Bible. But let me read to you 
what is actually one long sentence in the original Greek version of this, verses 3 through 8. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart because you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And you might think, wow, you know, three through eight, uh, uh, we can knock that out in one message. Uh, We won't. Um, We'll barely get through uh, verse five today uh, because there is that much there. Uh, Paul has this joy-filled, thankful heart. Uh, And here's really the main point. I'm only going to make one main point today. Surprisingly, I discover in this book of Philippians that joy is actually circumstantial. I'll explain that in a minute. But it's all about right focusing on the right circumstances. Uh, but before we do that, if you'll allow me, I want to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail of something that, and this, is the, this is the burden that you bear. The preaching comes through this person, okay? So certain things just grab a hold of me that may not grab a hold of you, sorry. Um, but I think it's nonetheless important. Uh, and what I see right off the bat here in Philippians is this habit of public gratitude on the part of the Apostle Paul, this habit of public gratitude. Did you know out of the 13 books that Paul writes that make up our New Testament, 10 of the 13, he starts off by thanking uh, God for the people he's writing to. 10 of the 13, he's practicing this habit of public gratitude, not just private gratitude, but public. And let me, just make, let me just make it clear. This is not just customary stuff in a letter in that time. This is not a, how are you? You know, when you ask that question to someone and you're really hoping that they know you only want like three words, not three paragraphs, uh, even though you, we all should want to be open to three paragraphs, just to be clear, when I ask you that, I'm not like everybody else. Okay, let's just go on record. Um, this is, this is not the, what I've heard explained as the Oreo. Have you heard about that? You want to say something hard to someone, you, uh, you know, you, you start with a cookie on the top, then you give the hard filling, and then you end with a cookie. Uh, this way they can really take the center better that way. Um, it never really works because if you like the middle of the Oreo, oh, never mind. Um, and the reason I say that is because these thank yous are not generic. They're, they're specific to the audience in each time that Paul does this. And, and get this, they're not flattery directed. He's not, he's not saying something to them directly. He's saying something to God and they're listening in. Now think about this for a moment. What would it be like if you walked by someone's room and they were praying for you and you heard them? Now, I know sometimes, you know, I'm praying for people and I'm groaning. And I'm anxious over them. I'm not sure I want them to hear that. I think they might be discouraged to hear that. But, but can you imagine that you 
you walk by their room and what you hear is someone just so joyful and so thankful for the person they're praying for. And then get this, they're not just praying that to God. Can you imagine someone coming up to you and saying, do you know that every time I think about you, God is getting thanks and I am just overflowing with joy. Uh, I mean, that would, I don't, that would arrest me in a big way. And that's what's going on here. So here's the rabbit trail. I want to I share something that I'm not really proud of at all. In fact, I'm kind of embarrassed by it. But it was at least 15 years ago that um, I was sort of learning some things about myself that I didn't want to know. And in the process, uh, I remember a counselor telling me that uh, not only was I one of the most frozen emotional people that he had ever met, uh, but in the process of this... Um, I have a very difficult time with public gratitude. I have a difficult time with verbal affirmations to people, noticing them and even more saying them. And so he, he challenged me to, to take a yellow pad, which I love, and usually has all my tasks on it. And I, he said, take a sheet uh, and take your, your wife and all of your six kids and just write all the ways that God's working in them, all the great things you see that God is doing them, just basically a whole sheet of just, you know, thanksgiving and affirmation. I didn't get very far on any page. That was just devastating. And so what happened? Well, I, that's the beauty of the Bible. It exposes us and it points us to Christ. And there was this verse in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, where Jesus out loud in front of his disciples in the crowd praised to God and said, oh God, I praise you and I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise intelligent, but revealed them to babes. And there was Jesus practicing out loud public gratitude. And I thought, wait a second, I've got Jesus in me, which means that habits in me, I just need to figure out how to tap into that and begin practicing that. And as I, it took years of exposure over and over again as to how I was weak in that area. It took years of uh, repenting of that. It took years of praying to understand that. And eventually God began to realize, to reveal to me that underneath my, my fear was this anxiety of being, of sounding so awkward. Uh, underneath that was this pride. Underneath that was also this, this blindness. I wasn't able to see incremental grace in the people around me because I only wanted God to do big works of grace around me because if he did big works of grace around me, I'd feel better about me too. And eventually I began trading in that blinding anxiety for eyes to spot these little incremental works of God. I began trading in that pride for courage to speak words of affirmation and I began to really believe that every time I talked to God about this, he was always listening and he was always responding. And it was painfully awkward for a long time and still is a lot of times, but it's more of a habit today than it was. Old dogs really can learn new tricks in Jesus. And you know what grace does? Grace keeps me trying where guilt just discourages me into quitting. That's the beauty of the gospel. Okay, rabbit trail, done. All right, back to this. Joy is circumstantial. That's really the main thrust of this passage here that I want to communicate today. But again, it's all about focusing on the right circumstances. Now, I need to clarify this. 
I've been told most of my life from Philippians, from other books in the Bible, that we should not get our joy from circumstances. Because circumstances are always up and down, right? We should get our joy in the Lord. And after all, Philippians itself says in chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord, not in your circumstances. So that's true. That's completely and totally true. What I'm suggesting today is I think it's more than just that. I think that if we leave it at that, it's one of those glorious truths that is a little abstract, and it's like climbing a rock face with no handholds. So I want to give you a couple handholds today that maybe will take this a little, a little further. Just try on this idea, even if you don't maybe agree with it at first. Notice what, what Paul does here in Philippians. He doesn't start off by talking about his own troubles. Paul's in, got in some deep troubles in this prison, and the Philippians are troubled by his troubles. But Paul doesn't say anything about his circumstances. He actually focuses on their circumstances. And specifically, he does something that it becomes amazingly wise and helpful here. And it's all found in this first word of verse 5. Making my prayer with joy because, this is, why, this is my source of joy, it is your partnership, he says. In other words, Paul's not focused on his hard circumstances, he's focused on their gospel circumstances. So there's really two reasons, uh, two causes for joy here. Verse 5, there's a circumstance, this gospel partnership, and verse 6, there's a consequence. The circumstance is this gospel partnership, uh, which we're going to talk about a little bit more. And the consequence, verse 6, is the gospel partnership proves to Paul, the way they're responding to Paul and his gospel ministry, proves to Paul that they actually belong to Jesus Christ and that that good work in them is unstoppable and will reach completion. So there's a circumstance. And there's a consequence, and these are the two sources of joy for Paul. Now, we're going to look at verse 6 next week. There's so much in verse 6. We're just going to take a whole week to look at that. Um, but I want you uh, to think about this idea of gospel partnership here uh, today, and that is, um, look at verse 7 when, when Paul says this, um, I write for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. And here's the phrase. You've all been partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. These are the Macedonians who were not only radically generous with their money and sending it to Paul. These were the Macedonians who were not ashamed of Paul's imprisonment. They identified with this guy who was, who was considered an unpatriotic, almost treasonous guy who was locked up. Uh, and it would, that, that kind of shame association, which we don't know of as much today, would have been big. It would have been a reason not to be associated with Paul. And, get, and not only that, Paul's financial needs are actually less when he's in prison because he's not out spreading the gospel, and yet they're still wanting to send him uh, provisions while he's in prison. I would put it this way, when it comes to the cause of Christ, the advancing of the kingdom, these Philippians were not passive attenders, 
They were active owners of the gospel. They were active owners. And this word partnership, it's the same word that we translate sometimes fellowship, gospel fellowship. Uh, it's the word koinonia. It's like it's the idea of camaraderie when you have a common passion. Uh, like a, like, a, like when you, even when you grieve over, say, the, the loss of a team performing so astoundingly bad, just, just hypothetically speaking. But there's, you can tap into that a little bit. There's a little bit of camaraderie right there, right? Whether it's grieving or rejoicing. Emotions are contagious. Emotions are contagious. Remember I said last week, joy, biblical joy thrives in community and barely survives individually. Have you ever been thrilled or wowed about something and you, uh, you, know, you burst into a room or something like that or you, you, know, you burst online or whatever it is and you, uh, this is always better in person, uh, and you just, you know, you, you're just overflowing with just something that just uh, moves you like crazy. And you get this sort of flatline response from someone. And you just want to reach across and slap them and go, are you alive? Is the patient alive? You know, Doot. well, this is the opposite of that. That's what Paul's saying. Man, when I think of the gospel and everything it means to be an advancing Christ's kingdom, and I think of you guys, that you just multiply the emotion that I have. Your thrill hits my thrill, which goes back and hits your thrill. This is the exact opposite. So it's no wonder, he says, I hold you in my heart in verse 7. And then he says it a different way in verse 8. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And you know, sometimes in a sentence, particularly when it's God's sentence, it's just a couple words that ought to just freeze us. I mean, think about this, verse 8. You could have a complete sentence if you wrote it this way. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with my affection, period. But it doesn't say my affection, does it? It says the affection of Christ Jesus. Those three little words are massively important. You know what that tells me? It tells me that if I belong to Jesus, I have this. I have this affection of Christ Jesus in me. In fact, I want you to look at a great passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're almost done. Hang in there. 2 Corinthians 5. And I'm going the wrong way in my Bible. Just so you know, sometimes it's easy to get messed up, especially when you get used to using an online Bible. And all you do is type it in. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll just, a couple verses, verse 14. This is what happens when you become a partaker of grace, as Paul says in Philippians 1. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us. It rules us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then it changes everything, verse 16. So because of that, because of this transformation 
of who we live for. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't judge them. We don't evaluate them. We don't size them up. We don't relate to them through what we see with our eyes and our ears. Not their behavior, not their appearance, not their background, not their political views. None of that. None of that registers. None of that slows down the love of God for us. We once thought of Christ that way, verse 16 says. We just thought of what Jesus was like, this rabbi from Nazareth, who was doing all these blasphemous things. But we don't think of him that way any longer. You see... If someone is in, new, in Christ, they are a new creation. And the old things have passed away. Now, let me make a prophecy here. and You can stone me if I'm wrong next week. You ready? My guess is that some other believer is going to uh, remind you that the old things have not passed away this week. There's a lot of the old things still coming out of them. That's why it's interesting that it says past tense. It's as good as done. The whole point of this passage is that, that I'm, I'm referencing here back to this, these affections of Christ Jesus is that what the gospel does is it enables me to see people, see believers as to what they're becoming, not who they currently are. So when the old you comes out, I know that's not the true you. I know that's the part of you you hate and you could push rewind in a moment if you could. I know that the new you is going to win out over the old you because of Christ. And I am drawn to the new you. I'm drawn to the new you like Christ is drawn to his unblemished bride who's still not quite unblemished. C.S. Lewis put it this way, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. We are not mere mortals. That's what these affections of Christ Jesus do uh, for us that Paul has for these people. This is this joy gospel partnership that Paul is speaking about. It's like we're 9-11 survivors. And we have been, and what binds us together is the fact that we have been rescued. We, we are, we're the rescued from 9-11. We have been uh, miraculously saved from judgment through God's res- rescuing grace. And that ought to bind us together. We ought to never forget 9-11 in that sense. But here's what's even more radical. We're not just 9-11s who have in common this rescuing experience. That's just the beginning. You see, when you come to Christ, you enter into this business of Christ, this gospel partnership, this advancing of the kingdom. It's like all of a sudden after we're rescued, our rescuer invites us to go at great risk back into the building to save others, and we willingly do it. That's what this gospel partnership is. Do you know what I'm describing to you this morning? Do you know about this this energizing joy that comes from interacting with people that love Christ and love his gospel? 
this, this joy that radiates from gospel circumstances, not from the kind of circumstances that are up and down, these aroused affections that we have for each other, these, those moments when we're with one another, when the work of God in us and the work of God through us is the centerpiece of our conversation and it's energizing, those moments when someone is interacting with you and they're helping you see that those mundane things you do, those unnoticed things that you do through those tasks that you do day in and day out really do count for Christ. They really are part of the evidence of God's grace and and the evidence that God's kingdom is working through you and they're able to take those simple things and help make kingdom connections to them. Those miraculous opportunities we have to be a witness when we feel like I'm just a feeble nightlight in a warehouse full of thickening darkness. And someone is able to say, but you're a nightlight. Do you experience this regularly or rarely? You know, I I experienced this this week with some of you. I just remember going into a a moment with some of you and I I had very little energy. And when I was done... I was skipping. Well, I'm going to suggest to you two things. There's probably a lot of things, but the reasons there's a kink in the hose, and then we're going to come in just a moment to bread and cup together. I think our joy comes from the wrong circumstances a lot of times. Our joy comes not from the gospel work. It comes from circumstances that are up and down that we cannot control instead of gospel circumstances that are always moving forward and always under God's absolute control. And then I think the other problem is we we have diffused gospel passions. Sometimes I put up my sprinkler in the yard and I notice that if the dishwasher's on and the laundry's running and someone's taking a shower, it just kind of sits there. (laughs) It just doesn't have any pressure because the water's being diffused all over the place. So, Jesus can fix this, and I'm going to tell you one thing in just a moment. But first, I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward, and the guys serving the Lord's Supper today. If you're with us, this table is open to everyone who's a partaker of grace, as Paul says in Philippians. Everyone who calls Jesus their Savior and their King. And we'll come down the center aisle together, take bread and cup, and then in just a moment, I'll lead us in taking it together. But this table is a reminder that just as my heart is exposed to diffused passions and my heart is exposed to joy from the wrong circumstances, Jesus can fix that. And this is one of the reasons I think, one of the ways I think he'll do it. I think if you were to ask the Lord, those of you who are going to be with us for a while here, um, to use this season in Philippians to expose the deepest recesses of your soul and to lead us to the centerpiece of Philippians, which is humility in chapter 2, where God will humble us so that he can exalt us through some profound life changes. I think that can make that gospel partnership, which we, even if you experience regularly, don't you want to experience it even more? I think that can flourish in us even more. In John chapter 15, 
Jesus says this. What does he say? What did you say, Jesus, in John chapter 15? Can we move the slide there or is it stuck? There we go. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. And the next slide tells us what he does call us. He calls us friends, for all that I've heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Jesus invites us into this partnership, this business adventure. And then he goes on in the very next verse to say, you haven't chosen me, I've chosen you, and I've appointed you to go and bear fruit. And did you know that this is the same chapter where he says, I'm telling you these things because I want my joy that's rooted in gospel circumstances to be your joy, and I want your joy to be full. I want you to be fully engaged in this kingdom mission. 